What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Trumpet Summit. My name is John Raymond. I'm your host. We're here in episode four of season two, talking this week with the great Alex Sipiagin, who, if you know, you know he plays the mess out of the trumpet. <laughs> I mean, Alex has such a ridiculous facility on the instrument. I mean, to me, he makes everything sound so fluid and so easy. And not only that, he's a great example to me of somebody who has an improvisational voice where you can hear the traces of the lineage, but those things are put together in a really original and unique way that always sound like him. And I think that's what we're all trying to shoot for, right? Like we're, we're trying to sound like ourselves in the context of this lineage that we're all a part of. And he's going to actually talk about this in the conversation. He talks about connecting different kinds of vocabulary ideas and how he has gone about working on this over the years. He also shares some secrets with regards to trumpet playing. That is some really great stuff you're not going to want to miss. And he gives some really great advice about practicing and how to go about it in a really effective, efficient way. So thank you guys for checking out this podcast. I always appreciate it. If you haven't subscribed already, please go ahead and do so now wherever you're listening to it. That'll make sure you get the new episode every two weeks when it comes out. And if you'd also be so kind as to leave a review, I'd really appreciate it. That'll help more people hear about this podcast. So without further ado, here's the great Alex Sipiagin. Yo, have you guys heard? We've got brand new Trumpet Summit t-shirts in the house, all right? I got a little excited, and I had a very limited run of tees printed specifically for this season of the podcast, featuring a rebrand of the Trumpet Summit logo done by my good friend Jamie Brevik at B-Side Graphics. The design is killing. The t-shirts are super comfy, and, you know, there aren't any sponsors for this podcast, so if you're into it, and you want to support what's going on and get something cool out of it, this is a great way to do so. So you can get one by going to my website, john-raymond.com slash store. And you can find the Trumpet Summit tees there, sizes small all the way to double X. And it'd be a great way for you to support what's going on. Another way you can support the podcast is by picking up a PDF or a hard copy of my book, The Jazz Trumpet Routine, which is essentially a fundamentals book geared towards creative improvisers, okay? It's designed to help you rethink how to go about practicing and approaching fundamentals from the perspective of a jazz trumpet player. It's designed for players of all ages, all ability levels, and the best part is that it comes with call-and-response style play-along recordings for every single exercise. So grab a tea or pick up a copy of the book. Thank you for helping make this podcast happen. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for doing this, man. Uh, I've been really looking forward to chatting with you. Oh, nice. Totally. Thank you so much for calling. It's great. You know, I guess a good way to open it up is uh, I was thinking about some of the people that you've worked with over the years that I assume have had a big influence on you. I think of Dave Holland. I think of Michael Brecker. Uh, Mulger Miller came to mind. And I'm sure there are many others, of course. Um, and I guess I'm wondering if there are any certain moments that come to mind that were really impactful for you, either touring or playing or hanging with them, 
or just talking with them about the music casually in passing or something. Uh, I'm sure you have many incredible experiences with these folks to draw on, but I guess I'm wondering if any stick out with any of those people or others that you feel have made a really big impact on you over the years. You know, when I look back on my 30 years career in the United States and New York, there's definitely few points of this time sticking out as, uh, you know, it's a time when I play with Michael Breaker, time when I play with uh, Dave Holland, as well as Gonzalo Robalcaba. Uh, I was in Mingus big band. And of course, in many others, but this is like four most important points of my career, which really moved me, like helped me to move forward and find myself, you know. Um, obviously, number one, I would say my Michael Breaker experience, uh, it was absolutely uh, outstanding and completely, you know, turned my life around and, uh, you know, helped me to find my own voice, even, you know, even more than I already felt at the moment, you know. Uh, Dave Holland as well. You know. All those guys were such a heavy, you know, influences in every possible way, you know. Every, every time we had a tour with Dave Holland, he always shared some deep stories uh, about Miles Davis. Yeah, Miles was his reference always. <clears throat> You know, the way he was building his own music, you know. You know, Gonzalo Robalcaba brought something which I never had in my, you know, vocabulary, vocabulary, you know, so certain rhythmical aspect. You know. hmm. And I would say, Malgrim Miller will start to be very close with him when I, you know, when I joined Dave Hall on Sextet, we uh, immediately clicked, you know, I asked him to do my recording and it's really helped me to establish my lyrical point of, you know, improvisation, I would say. What about that relationship with Mulgrew? Do you feel activated that for you? I'm curious, like that lyrical thing. You know, it. Uh, I was always big fan of, uh, like, like many, almost pre pretty much all the trumpet players. So I was big fan of Woody Show playing, and Malgrim Miller connect and confirm my thoughts about uh, uh, Woody Show concepts in his phrasing, which I've been practicing, and uh, and basically confirm my way what I'm doing with my thing, uh, which is I'm not trying to copy like one or another player, like Woody or Freddie, but I'm trying to develop my concept uh, kind of it's the same kind of way. So but hanging with Malgru and playing with him, it's really made, made, made me more confident what I'm doing. You know? hmm. He was very supportive and very, uh, you know, uh, pay a lot of attention. And, uh, you know, I, that's what I thought on every note I played, he would really listen yeah, and it's, like I said, it's given me a lot of confidence and and inspiration to move forward to, to write some music. Actually, I, I remember when I, I record my album Mirages. Yeah, it was clearly sort of about Malgru, and you know, and it's, it's still my favorite, one of my favorite albums. You know? Yeah, me too. Actually, <laughs> I love that record. Unfortunately, also also records was recorded. In, in one shot, in one day, you know, crisscross dates, you, you never have a second chance. 
you know, basically because you don't have a time on a studio. And so all those records have been recorded like, okay, we have five hours, let's do it. One, two, one, two, three, whatever. If you, if you screwed up, <laughs> it's your fault. But what I'm trying to say is if I had more time, it probably would be better, definitely. Huh. But there's a certain rawness about that, that, I mean, like you guys, nobody misses, you know what I mean? Everybody's really firing. But sometimes I, I notice myself, I'm a little bit overwhelmed or maybe, or maybe too nervous or not, not, not nervous, or maybe simply not ready enough because all the compositions usually new and you, you think you're ready, but then you listen back on, oh, man, I, I wish I changed this. I wish I mm. had some time to work with this composition more and stuff like that, you know? And I'm sure actually, I mean, like hearing Mulgrew or Seamus or, you know, hearing anybody else that's playing with you, you're getting things from them too. Like, oh, I see how you approach this. Like, yeah. I could get into it. Yeah, way, yeah, yeah. Like, you, know. you know, guys like Seamus, you know, we did so many recordings together. Uh, every time we play, we actually just did a, quite a few recordings last September, you know. When you stay next to the guys like Seamus, it's really inspiring. You because you you found you found your own sound very easy, uh, the sound blend very easy. You know, it's a lot of fun. I wanted to go back for a second to Michael Brecker. Um, could you elaborate on maybe some more specific ways you feel like playing with him or working with him, being around him, sort of helped you find your own voice? Yeah. Uh, I just remember some moments which really important. Remember, whenever I first time I played with Michael in his small stage in a quintet or sextet, and we did a big tour in Japan. And I, I think it was 2002 or something like that. And uh, uh, of course, he was my idol. I, I've been listening to him like everybody else nonstop. And he was in the peak of his amazing career like, like the best ever he plays the best ever i heard and I, I remember i was staying next to him on the stage and we started to play one's first song which is like very fast up tempo and and he started playing first solo and 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 i feel like my right arm started to get numb i was like oh my god what's, what happened i'm kind of nervous but this different kind of nervousness i was completely blown away by his playing next to me so close, so clear, so unbelievably amazing. I was standing next to him and I was really, I was frozen. My uh, my arm was started getting really numb. I was like, oh my God, what I'm going to do right now? How I'm going to play? I mean, I, I feel like, but he took such a long solo. Uh, so it's almost like a two hour solo. I, I mean, it was like seven minutes solo, but it was enough time to real realize a lot of things in my head you know i i just realized okay if he hired me it means i'm doing something okay something something right so i shouldn't be that nervous should be that stressed and i slowly slowly start to relax and by the end of his solo i feel like blood stopped running in my arms and and i start feeling more and more relaxed and, and finally when i play solo i feel like so much energy oh my god well, that's my biggest memory of, of uh, playing with Michael, it gives you so much energy, which comes from him, not just from his playing, but also from his human being, his absolutely kindness, 
and respect. And he, he was such a great person. He was totally dedicated to what you play. He really following you. And, and I remember my second, third song, I feel absolutely great. So, so I feel relaxed and, and start believing myself. That's that's one thing I remember. Wow. Another thing, I was always listening to him practicing in the sound checks, uh, how careful he pronounced every note, how careful he pay attention to every detail of composition or chord. He, would, he could learn one phrase for like a couple of hours, like develop, try to develop this phrase until it's perfect in slow tempo. And it's given me like a, a lot of idea, you know, you cannot impress anybody by playing fast or high. Just take it, take your time, take, take take it slow, and you know. Yeah, and later when we start, we went to some other tours in the, in the future. I remember we took a long walks in, in Europe and Italy. I said, man, you you you're the only one who asked me to, like to take take a walks and stuff like this. And because he always stay in the room and practice. Like, Come on, Michael, we have to take a walk and just get some air. Yeah. And, and it was uh, our thing, like after lunch, take like like a one hour walk, like in Italy or some, and just talk about things, you know. Wow. Just talking about his inspiration, his like, you know, yeah. talk about Coltrane and his practicing, like, you know. That's amazing. I mean, I'm sure that those walks and, and those conversations you had with him, I mean, those are priceless. It comes up sometimes, you know, I remember one thing, some some other thing comes up when I when I listen to one other recordings, you know. And it's actually one of my favorite exercises right now, what I'm doing. Um, of course, we all like to transcribe. Uh, I like to transcribe one or another phrase of Michael and try to disassemble this phrase in a few different pieces and see what this phrase based on. And... Sometimes you find so many different things, you know, in one phrase, you know. Hmm. So this is my like one of my favorite way to practice jazz and find something on my own, you know. Did he talk about that, or that's just something that you're getting from? Him? It's a, yeah, it's very simple. It's basically uh, uh, I recently transcribed this one, one very long phrase of Michael, not recently, maybe two years ago, and this one single phrase give me so much so many different ideas only one phrase so uh, i see this phrase from arc of the pendulum composition it's like a very long beautiful so w- when you break this uh, phrase into pieces uh, you, you can see uh, where the pieces came from you know all this uh, combination of like one pattern, one diminished pattern going into bebop scale, going into traditional phrase, going into pentatonic, uh, and everything connected so beautifully, smoothly, you know. So when I when I do, I try to practice on every segment separately, and on the end, I have a lot of information. Uh, I pull out a lot of information just based on one phrase, you know, hmm. well, and I I can practice the same phrase tomorrow and, and get something else. It's, uh, this one phrase growing in so many different you know directions. You know. Yeah. So you said you would take like each aspect of that phrase and isolate it. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Like separate these uh, objects you know, and just try to develop and just just to play with them. Try to uh, maybe I you know try to be free. Just uh, put this uh, 
little you know little melody in different keys and see what happened and also uh, analyzing his phrase you see uh, which keys uh, he observed what kind of uh, uh, turn outside of changes keep going this time or this time uh, you know it's it's very interesting hmm. and I have a couple of phrases actually which uh, I framed it in in the, and they became like compositions. You know, I'm not hiding. It's like a, one of my album is a composition blues for Mike is a based on, basically based on his phrase because the phrase is so beautiful and it deserves to be arranged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's on that Mirage's record, right? No, I think this one is in the Moments Captured. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of uh, One for Mike. Yeah, One for Mike is Mirage's. Yeah, this is different. The salsa is, is obviously for the same mic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I figured. Uh, that's really interesting to me that you talk about that because to me, that's something that I notice in your playing and personally I'm really drawn to uh, is like this connection of a whole bunch of different kinds of language. Like I hear this bebop language and then I hear you move into some triad pairs or triadic playing or something. And then I'll hear some pentatonic stuff and then I'll hear some chromatic stuff or something. All sort of mixed together and it feels really seamless to me. Yeah, that's basically uh, my concept of, uh, of, uh, of music. I'm trying to collect uh, phrases and episodes which I really feel like, like Try it could be triads, could be simple scale, could be simple phrase of uh, Clifford Brown, and, and just put them in the in the mix and just try to work with them, try to connect them, and you know, and uh, and I always can get something interesting out of it. Every day is different, you know. But uh, here is a uh, one rule I, I use: I, I must love one or another. You know, leak or passage or scale. I, I really feel like I really hear in it. Like for example, say those trials, I want to play with them for a whole day because I, I really have fun. I, I love to do this. It's the same as the phrases, like few Clifford Brown phrases, which I really like to practice in every key and just continue them with a similar information each, you know, each time. Mm-hmm. So that's really good. I mean it it to me that's that's like the mile deep inch wide approach versus mile wide inch deep. You know, it's like you don't have to necessarily get a ton of information, but you have to extract a ton of information from a few things or something. Absolutely. You know, uh, and I remember in the past we transcribe whole solos and learn them by memory. And we do this so much. And I, I still have those books collected what I on the end of the day, I remember maybe like a few phrases from the solo because simply I love only a couple of phrases. I love I love whole solo. I love the music, but few phrases stick to me forever. Mm-hmm. And from from then, uh, from and decide to transcribe just uh, some little segments and immediately try to memorize them and try to work on them, try to develop and maybe learn different keys put them in different uh, rhythmical mood, like from triplets or, you know, mm. definitely in, in some time, uh, whenever I practice one or another phrase, I'm immediately trying to put it in the time frame, like uh, in a form, I would say, 
four, five, six bars form. So I try to feel it in time immediately, not just memorize it and and that's it. No, I really want to do this homework. You know, go as far as possible. Yeah. So what I'm curious about is, like I said, I hear all these different aspects in your playing. You're talking about how you're going about it. To me, the thing that's so uh, beautiful about it is how they connect. Like, like I said, it, it's for me, it feels very seamless. You know, when you'll kind of go from like a triadic thing to a chromatic thing, or a bebop thing to a triadic thing, or whatever it might be. So, have you worked on specific ways to connect these worlds, or do you feel like they just happen naturally the more that you do them? Yeah, uh, basically, uh, <clears throat> I work on connection. This is very important. So let's say, <clears throat> uh, let's take two different subjects, like, like a pentatonic or whatever, D minor pentatonic in some kind of a <clears throat> diminished pattern. And I, when I try to put these two things, let's say, in four bars form, I want to find a connection between them. Is this connection I, I call chromatic joints. Mm. Basically, I try to uh, practice chromatically in the first place, just practice chromatic scale and, and basically simply exercise chromatically in time, in a, let's say in a, in, a, in a four bars form, and I put accent on a different note. So it's not just a bunch of chromatic stuff, but I, I, I put an accent I, regardless, regardless the changes where I am. So let's say if I play in C minor for four bars, I play chromatic scale and I put an accent on a certain C minor notes, which is like 11 or 9 and 7, third. So when I play chromatically, uh, I'm trying to still sound like C minor, you know. Mm. So, so basically, this kind of exercises uh, help me to develop uh, how to connect smooth from one thing to another. When I, uh, like I said, whenever I play D minor pentatonic connects with some diminished pattern, I create certain chromatic join which can go up or down or up, up and down with a certain accent. And, uh, and it's, it is becoming, those two subjects becoming connected, it becomes like one phrase. My next step would be input chromaticism inside of those two subjects, not just to connect them. Mm. Like put some chromatic stuff inside, in, let's say, inside of the minor pentatonic. Yes. And just play around with this for a while. Yeah, yeah. It's something that I also really love about your playing that uh, for me, I remember being in school hearing the Brecker Quindectet record, Wide Angles, and you have this solo on uh, Scylla. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Uh, man, and I was I was like floored by it the first time I heard it. So I remember transcribing it. And th the thing that I was really into, among other things, was just the fact that, f at least for me at that time, rhythmically, it was wasn't just like it was in time in the sense that it was like in the groove of the band, right? You you were playing like either some like sort of like triplet thing um, or it was out of time in general. 
Um, is that something that came from playing with him or working with him? Uh, it definitely came from inspiration by working with him. Uh, uh, I remember this time, and actually I remember I did another version of the solo, and, and it was actually it was much better. I don't know why they pick up the original. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I remember it's like I said, Mike, can I do it again? It's like he said, really? I said, just for me. And I stayed in the session after recording. He did a couple of more takes, and, and it was more together. That's what I thought. But they, for some reason, they keep original version. You still have that other version? Uh, it, it was. It, I'm sure another version is somewhere on the tapes, but they still keep uh, original whatever take I did with everybody else. I'm talking about Stila, the solo. I would love to hear that other version. Just, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's somewhere. Actually, it's it's very interesting. Those guys hear something different what we hear. Uh, I remember a similar episode with Dave Holland when we record uh, Sextet record with Malcolm Miller and Eric Harland. And uh, and we play song. I forgot. I think it was Double Vision or something like that. And I played one solo, which was very safe. And I I did exactly what I kind of I thought I did right. Okay, I went to upper register. I play. I, it was enough technique. I didn't screw up. I didn't get lost. I it was it was kind of safe, nice solo. I said. And another solo was kind of a little bit breaking in, in, in different you know ideas and just. And Dave prefers another solo. I said, Dave, this, this solo is a lot safer. This like, and he said, I know. I, this solo, I can hear very safe. But this one, you're trying to reach somewhere you've never been before. And it's, uh, you know, it's really let me think, man. And I think similar thing happened with, with the Silla solo on Michael's record. I was kind of probably overwhelmed, a little bit worried and excited at the same time and just try to find something different, you know. Hmm. And also, it, everything was kind of on cue. Uh, I remember this open section was on cues and strings came in. But man, I, I love that solo. Uh, it's so good. And I got so much out of it. And I feel like I still get things out of it. In fact, I, I usually recommend it to students also for like playing over like something kind of modal, um, getting some different things happening rhythmically, um, chromatically, like there's a bunch of great diminished stuff in there. And, um, but specifically it was the rhythmic thing for me that really was important. And, uh, I guess I'm wondering, like, have there been any specific ways over the years that you've worked on that kind of playing? Is it just a matter of doing it? Yeah, I think it's just a matter of doing it. <clears throat> you know, when I when I when I when I practice, I try to uh, dedicate equal time to different rhythmic aspects, like a triplet, sixteen or eight notes, then put them together. You know, then be kind of independent, but you know, go from one rhythmic pattern to another. That's what I'm actually trying to practice right now to space myself and create some spaces and. Hmm. What do you mean by that exactly? You know, basically break this uh, long phrases into different pieces and make it make it more angular to create some spaces in between. You know, not to play one phrase all the way through, but just break this in different segments and just you know, it also gives some space to rhythm section to follow a different way. You know? hmm. 
you know, when you practice, uh, like I said, with a, let's say with a metronome or playback, uh, you follow the form, you play in the same, you're playing the same information, you know, and instead of eight bar, eight beats, you can, I mean, or eight bars, you can spread it for like 32 bars. Make some little rest to let you breathe and stuff like that. Were there any specific ways that you worked on just like playing groupings of five or groupings of seven? Like that's another thing I hear in your playing where it's not always right in the four, four box, you know, it's like you're adding some rhythmic variety there. Yeah. Like for example, one of my songs, which is, uh, uh, called Videlas. It's, it's like on a big five. Uh, I try to uh, make different rhythmical, uh, you know, different phrases uh, based on uh, some kind of uh, rhythmical progression, like like you know, basically uh, take one scale and do the same exercise on one scale and switch to another scale, you know. I want to actually get even more and be more specific and in going inside of the zone even deeper. Mm-hmm. That's my next step. Mm-hmm. Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> Happy to help. Yeah. That actually is a good segue too to something else that I was thinking about was uh, just your original music. And to me, I feel like it's a perfect extension of how you play. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if there are any specific ways you go about approaching writing melody first, um, groove, baseline first, harmony first. I'm sure it changes. Yeah, uh, I would say uh, my writing really reflect my practice, and, and uh, it's basically it's very simple concept I follow. And uh, when I when I practice one one or another thing, it could be scale, could be like I said pentatonic. I try to get something out of it, try to transform this pentatonic into some phrase by inputting some chromaticism inside, try to put some space in between, and sometimes this phrase becomes a very good starting point of my composition. Mm. Like many compositions, like I would say, Mood 2, one of my songs, and one for Mike, they all came from the same kind of concept by practicing one one or another phrase, Try to transpose a phrase to some some other color, uh, to some other keys, and uh, on the end of the day, you, sometimes you get lucky to end up with a with a nice melody, you know, which become a beginning of your composition. Mm. Uh, so once you know the direction of composition, it's easy to continue. You know? mm. And of course, all this baseline came from uh, inspiration from Dave Holland, obviously, because. He used a lot of vamps in his music, and uh, all those vamps is so beautiful, so rhythmical, fun to blow on it. And and it's really, I'm not trying to repeat his saying, but it's it's really stick with you, and you start singing a certain way. So once you get a melody, or at least direction of composition, you think about bass line. It's my next step. Hmm. Did he ever talk about his process of writing music or his bass lines or anything like that? No, not really. He never shared this information, but it's very clearly, I mean, 
he liked to experiment with the baseline, with the grooves, with a certain. I guess maybe he didn't need to explain it. It was just all there, you know. Yeah, and and his bass, obviously because he's a bass player, his bass line is very melodic. So my next step is uh, once I get a melody together, when I get a bass line, my next step to find uh, something in between, which is uh, like a second voice, which kind of a, try to make an independent second voice. So at some point you can actually flip around first and second voices and. And that second voice become as a part of the tune too, you know. Mm. Sometimes you get in the third voice. So that's my way of writing. You know, obviously, once you get a melody and work on the bass line, I'm transferred from trumpet to piano and, and try to work on a, on, a, on a harmony. So, so once you have a harmony together, it's very easy to find a second and third voice and put them together. I've been noticing that on a few of your recent records you've been having more music with vocalists and lyrics and stuff are you writing lyrics at all i don't write lyrics usually they write lyric yeah yeah the vocalists whoever sing with me my uh, my recent vocal vocal salina ingibarian she's a russian singer she used to be in new york for a while <clears throat> and before she was my student uh, i simply love her voice and the way she sings blend with the trumpets very well. Mm-hmm. Like another singer uh, from Holland, Hiski Osterwijk, she was writing my lyric on my new past projects. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I, mean, I, I have worked with two vocalists in my projects. Was there anything specific that kind of prompted you to want to use vocals more? I don't know. I just uh, simply like the blend of trumpet and vocals. And then Mostly whenever I use vocal, I, I play I play in my line unison with a melody and create certain sounds, you know. Hmm. That's cool. So I also wanted to ask you about trumpet playing side of things because, I mean, to me, it's no secret that you have an incredible facility on the instrument. Like, I don't think I've ever heard you in any context where I haven't thought to myself, like, dang, he's getting all around the horn. Like, you always make it sound so fluid. Your sound always has this amazing fire and energy to it. So I guess I'm wondering, like, what's your secret? <laughs> like, how have you gone about developing the way that you play the instrument? You know, you know it's basically, it's not a secret. It's uh, a thanks so much, I mean, from not just in the, uh, First of all, I play in the uh, big equipment. I like big mouse pieces and big trumpet, and I... And hear my sound kind of on the dark side, like a, close to the flugelgorn, I guess. That's mm-hmm. how I hear it. And I try to basically uh, bring the sound to all the all the registers. That's my goal when I practice, you know, when I start to play my long tones and whatever exercises, I try to basically found my relaxing point. I use a lot of pedal tones, so basically trying to find my relaxing point on pedal C and brings the same relaxed position all the way to the top. Mm. Uh, so it's simple exercises, which I do, like which is arpeggio going chromatically down from middle C. At some point, I reach pedal C, keeping the same position of embouchure of the like middle C. And then I fully relaxed. I try to do this, uh, find my way back up the same way, slowly, slowly, slowly reaching middle C again by arpeggios. And then 
make a way up to the next sea and you basically try to pay attention to the to the sound of the you know are there any other exercises that you'll do or you've done for a number of years now that are just part of your regular routine or whatever yeah it's uh, basically i doing some long tones uh let's say grammatically up and down like starting from g and go to a flat come back to g go to f sharp and then g to a g f finally reaching from g to g to g to g that's my kind of a regular exercise as well as uh leap flexibility from charles colin book and i have only one rule i always keep try to keep my lips positioned together and as relaxed as uh on a, on a on a pedal C, so pedal C is always my reference point. Whenever I, whenever I feel some discomfort, I always come back to pedal C on the same position and find the answer, and I can go back to do whatever I do. Do you find that that uh, just day to day, week to week? I mean, the ups and downs of being a trumpet player. Um, do you find that you can get to the sound that you? want to get to pretty quickly yeah not, now i you know i know how to do this so i basically try to find a I, I basically i find my way very quick you know and of course sometimes we have some discomfort here and there and i'm simply i know how to fix those uncomfortable moments by basically play pedal c exercises for a while and it's uh, really fixed a lot of problems and a technical and a, and a sound and a, and a tongue exercise and all, all kind of stuff. Mm. Instead of uh, practicing tongue exercise, I want to find a problem and uh, what's wrong with my air, for example. Mm. And, and finding this problem, pedal C really helped me to find everything. Huh. Was there a certain point where? like you were kind of hitting a wall in any way, like you were, you were trying to find it and it wasn't working. And then all of a sudden, like you, I don't know, had some sort of revelation or something. You're always kind of hitting the wall, but, but what I'm trying to say so far, those uh, pedal C exercises try to, you know, really help me to find all the answers, you know, Hmm. Whenever I work on something like, man, it doesn't work. Okay, instead of keep working on this phrase or whatever, I I, I go uh, like a slowly, grammatically to battle C and just try to find a relaxed position and go back where I've been. And it usually improves uh, quite quickly. That's a really interesting thought, I guess. Like having like this um, sort of go-to thing that is always kind of your baseline where it's like, okay, I know if I go back to this, it's going to hook everything up and then I'll just go back to whatever I'm doing and it'll be better. I was kind of thinking about what you said of, of, okay, I play on a big instrument, pretty big mouthpiece. I'm always trying to get this dark sound in all the registers of the horn. Um, I find for me, at least personally, that when I try to get that dark sound, sometimes I, I lose something in the the energy or the fire that I need in the sound. Like I, I find that I can't sometimes do both the way that I would want them to. Um, have you ever dealt with that? Or do you feel like you can always 
kind of turn up the gas when you need to, so to say? Yeah, it's kind of goes both way. Uh, first of all, I, I'm not sure if dark sound is the right impression. <laughs> it's mm. it's a certain sound which I which I see, which I hear. It's not it's not necessarily dark. I mean, it, it's it could be actually bright, but in certain quality bright. Mm. You know, uh, again, uh, again, I'm repeating myself, but those exercises really helped to find the. Uh, sound to bring the sound on every register like you said to put a gas <laughs> like sometimes you have to play lead and um, and of course equipment this big mouse piece and big instrument uh, really help you to adjust you know to the lead playing very quick to the you know or opposite if you're playing ballads you know it would be sound like a fluid gorn you know do you feel like then the darkness you're kind of referring to is like is like certain overtones in the sound and maybe not? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah. Uh, basically, uh, what those pedal exercises does, it let you, uh, uh, your lips vibrate in a certain way and produce certain overtones in every register. Uh, that's why it's so easy to adjust uh, to different kind of genre, to lead or to classical, to jazz, to dark, to play ballad or play soft or loud, you know. But mm. in, in in the end, it's kind of the same, mm. the same approach, you know. You know, and you go back a long ways with Sergei Nikarikov, right? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we're very good friends. I mean, he's my hero, obviously. <laughs> we, we just spent a couple of days in Antonio's place, in Antonio Rapicciolo. Uh, you know, just watching him practice, and it's like incredible. I mean, you know, when I think about somebody who has sort of that dark overtone kind of thing in his sound, I think of his sound uh, to me. Uh, have you guys practiced a lot together over the years? Um, not practice, practice, but, uh, you know, kind of hang out, talk, talk about various things, and, you know, like a it doesn't work. To, I don't even know how to practice together with Sergei. It's, like, it's, it's all nozzle territory, all nozzle level. Yeah. Like I said, we, we listen to each other, you know. Like, for example, during the Antonio's visit, I try to exchange some lead pipes, you know, we help each other to make the right choice and mm. uh, mouse pieces, and, and etc. You know. Has he ever said anything about? trumpet playing or practicing or anything that has stuck with you over the years in terms of how he thinks about things? Yeah, very similar actually to Michael Breger. One thing he said, practice slow always. It's his favorite phrase, favorite advice to everybody. Slow and don't force yourself and don't don't practice without inspiration, basically. This is very important. Mm. Don't, don't push yourself too hard. Mm. Don't practice without inspiration, he said. Yeah, basically, uh, the way he practiced, what I noticed, he practiced in a slow, in a, in a little segments, and then slowly, and he put them together, those segments, and on the end, he got whole piece. And similar like Michael Breaker, he was practice very slow, pronounce every note, pronounce every passage, very careful and stuff like that, you know. You were mentioning Antonio's place, and, and I actually haven't tried any of those new horns yet. They sound amazing. Uh, from everybody that I hear, 
you were before you were playing on a Bach. Is that right? On a Yamaha. On a Yamaha. Yamaha. I'm sorry. I've been, yeah, I've been actually Yamaha artist uh, over the years. Like uh, I'll say, last 15 years before I switched to Antonio's horn, I play Yamaha. Uh, Yamaha LA model, okay. uh, and I had this uh, one of the first prototype uh, from Dave Bar- Dave Bargeron, hmm. Wayne Bargeron. I'm sorry, and uh, I love it. I love it very much. But uh, but once I tried Antonio equipment, it was all another level. You know, you have a mouthpiece from him too, right? Yeah, of course. Okay. Do they come connected, or is it you can? It's separate. You can take the mouthpiece out. Uh, mouse pieces which is I can screw into my trumpet okay. but I, I, I'll uh, he have a regular mouse pieces as well for regular trumpet and uh, so but it's, it's a very unique concept uh, you know with mouse piece uh, with a different backboard so basically you can exchange backboards for, uh, from smaller one to biggest one which is number 10 and uh, number 10 is a bigger hole mm. and uh before I was trying to play, uh, practice number 10 and play it in, in a band number seven, uh, slightly smaller. And then slowly, gradually, gradually, I actually start playing everything on number 10. This is another big help with the sound. What did you notice in trying his horns for the first time? Like, what did they feel like? What did they sound like that you were really into? You know, my first feelings about his horn like you don't need a mic ever again. <laughs> you just observe the room with a with a sound, and it, it, I don't know. It's a, it's a metal he built his instrument, which is phosphor bronze with nickel, or it's a, the way his bell uh, the build. It's produced certain sound. You feel comfortable in the room. It doesn't matter which acoustic environment you are in a big room or a small jazz club. You almost feel like you play with the sound. You don't need a mic support, you know. Oh, wow. That's my first impression. Like, wow, this is something different. I start to like myself more. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and he even making a joke, man, this is like a drug. So once you try it, you cannot stop. <laughs> <laughs> One, like, I feel like anytime you get in a situation where there's something about it that feels really good, then you're thinking less and you're just able to open up and express more or something. You feel that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things I was going to ask you that's sort of connected with this trumpet stuff for a second is I read somewhere, maybe another interview that you did or something, that two of the biggest things that you focus on with students are sound and time. Um, I'm curious if you could just talk more about that in terms of how you tend to work on that, those couple things with, with the students you work with. Yes, basically it's, it is the same what I just said. <laughs> I mean, all, all my thing is very simple. You know, number one goal to find a sound, your own sound. Don't do anything without you're satisfied with your sound and uh, don't jump ahead and just do some crazy stuff before you actually enjoy your sound. Mm. And uh, and like all my you know friends, my my trumpet players' friends, and we're always hanging, uh, like guys like Abish Icon and from Brian Lynch. The, you know, the, the, all of them have a similar ideas and similar uh, you know approaches, exercises, routine. And in the first place, they want to dedicate you know 
the practice time to find the sound. You know, for me, it's very important. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, listen to somebody who you really love, like let's say early Freddie Hubbard or Miles Davis, and don't try to be sound like them, but try to get a concept of the sound and bring it in into your own routine. Mm-hmm. Try to find what what is your sound. Uh, and, and again, those exercises, I'm repeating myself a million times. It's, for me, it's a pedal tones. Uh, one of my body com- completely relax and you know, all my muscles, you know, responding. My air is coming smoothly. That's a, I, I start feeling some blood circulation in my lips. That's a, that's a perfect timing when you can experiment with different things and Okay, I like this approach. I like this register. This really sound good. You know, once once you get it, you hear it, you remember this. You know, you try to bring to every register. And the same is a jazz routine. Before you even go in anywhere, try to feel whatever segment you're working right in time, like very very slow. I dedicated a lot of time to to my eight notes. So I have to kind of tune up myself every day. Okay, is my time okay today or, or it's not really happening? So I try to uh, practice with, with metronome and just pay attention on every eight notes. On It should be right on beat, right a little bit behind, or right a little bit ahead, but consistent. So before you play every phrase, I try to do this kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I tell my students as well, before you jump any further, just make sure you in slow tempo you you satisfy with the sound and with the time hmm. I heard some phrase recently I think it comes from it's like a military thing or or something of the sort where slow equals smooth and smooth equals fast have you ever heard that I I, I was really struck by that and that feels like it connects with what you're saying it's like this idea of the slower you work on something the smoother and clearer it'll be which will then allow you to do whatever with it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I'm curious, what is inspiring you now? Like, what are you digging into? What are you shedding? Um, what, what is something kind of you're going after? You, you mentioned earlier about trying to, like, space out your phrasing in a certain sense to develop some things more over a, a longer span of time. Yeah, so basically, you know, I have my favorite players <clears throat> who I like to listen, who I really enjoyed listening, and uh, some of some of them I enjoy to perform and record together. Guys like Chris Potter, you know, Seamus again, and and I'm you know I'm listening to their albums and, and many other guys like Will Winson, like Kurt Rosenwinkel. I always I'm I'm really you know following several guys totally addictive like 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 their music and you know and they give me very good inspiration to write my, my stuff you know i find that really cool and and interesting in a way that all the people you just mentioned are your peers you know like granted we can obviously draw a lot of inspiration from people who come before us but the whole batch of people you mentioned are are alive today that you work with many of them uh that feels significant to me you know 
Yeah, guys like Gonzalo Rublakaba, you know, I, I just recently looked Facebook. I think he posts something like uh, some Jazzy's CD compilation, uh, CD catalog of his label and one of the CD I record for him. It's, I'm really happy to see my, my CD inside of such a beautiful company of people like Will Wilson, Kurt Rosumay, well, not Kurt, uh, Seamus Black CD, of course, Gonzalo's project, which I was involved, you know, Yaswani Terry, and my own as well. So. That's really inspiring. Yeah. Uh, last question, and this is sort of circling back to something that I read about again in an interview with you at some point. Uh, you were just talking about the monk competition you did when you were younger. I think it was like 1990, right? 1990, November 1990. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't remember all the names, but it was a ridiculous cast of trumpet players, right? Yeah, it was uh, absolutely ridiculous. You're right, and uh, all those guys still on the scene right now. I mean, I can I can throw a few names like Kenny Rampton, Ryan Kaiser, Greg Gisbert, Alex Norris, Walter White, who I recorded yesterday, okay. and, and Nicholas Payton, and uh, Scott Weinhold, Marcus Printup. All those guys was in the same competition. Joe Magnarelli. <laughs> it's crazy, incredible, like. And it's really like I was. I feel really lucky to be to meet to meet them then, and they completely kick my ass. I'm like, oh my god! When I listen to those guys, what I'm gonna do, man? But it's yeah. really drove me. Actually, that's what drove me to New York. Eventually, it's like that's it. I cannot come back to where I was. I really find my way to be close to those guys. Do you remember anything specific about how any person played, or or like certain things you were thinking as you heard them? You know, what, what really blew me away is they all, uh, you know, was very rhythmically correct with a, with a phrasing. And um, all of them could play trumpet very well, you know. It was like very organic combination of, you know, everybody played very organic and strong and, and, and respectful to the style. That's what really... Uh, really helped me to realize, oh, oh man, I really have to go into transcription, really uh, go into learning of, uh, you know, basic, like, transcribe Clifford and early Freddy and just really go, not just transcribe and, and plays of phrases, but analyze and transpose different keys and stuff. Had you done that much up to that point? Yeah, I've been doing uh, pretty much the same thing, but not as intense. I was like, you know, you transcribe and you stop at a certain point. You learn something and you stop and you go to the next one. Everything was kind of incomplete, you know. Mm. And since I heard those guys, especially, you know, I remember Ryan, it's something hit me, man. You have to really work very hard to uh, learn how, 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 how to build the phrase and stuff like that. You know, try to respect every note. I can't imagine what that sounded like. Like, there's, do you know if there's any bootlegs of any of that or recordings of those concerts? I have a cassette tape of uh, whole finals. It was amazing. I, I still listen to this cassette, and it still blew me away. It's a it's a, a tape from the radio, Washington D.C., whatever. Wow, yeah, it's very good quality. 
I would love to hear that someday. <laughs> I mean, that that to me hits on a thing that I've noticed over the course of doing a lot of these conversations is this idea of how much more inspired we are as players when we're around each other and we're taking inspiration from each other. And that, that, that's really what drives us. Yeah, exactly. And then later I start working in New York with the same cats. Like a few years later, I was doing Gilevans orchestra every Monday and Ryan Kaiser was in the band. And then I joined Mingo's band. It was Kenya Rampton and Ryan Kaiser was in the band. And then Scott Van Hall joined. Then I did a lot of sub and Wenger for Scott and, 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 and I always learn from those guys, you know, always. Yeah. And the New York spirit, you know, everybody shares the ideas, everybody shares the information and help each other. That, that's so great. You know, what Alex just said there at the end, I've probably said it before, but to me, that is what this podcast is all about this idea of building a sense of community where we're sharing ideas with each other, we're encouraging each other, we're pushing each other to be better. That's what this is all about, I think, you know? Sometimes we as trumpet players get this bad rap, I think, of being edgy or vibey towards each other. Man, anybody who can play knows that nobody's like that out here, right? This is all love. We're trying to help each other, we're trying to push each other, we're trying to be there for each other so that we can make each other better, right? That's why we're doing this. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a brand new episode and conversation with the amazing John Swana. You definitely don't want to miss that. A special thanks to Tom Piechek for editing the audio for this episode and all of the episodes in season two. Appreciate you, man. All right, y'all. See you in a couple weeks. <laughs>